Test one, two, 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 one, two. <laughs> you know that's gonna end up in the final thing. Hello, this is Never Heard of a Podcast. I'm Sean Harwell, joined as always today by... Uh, Craig Moorhead, that's me, the co-host of Never Heard of It, the podcast you're listening to currently about... Uh, <laughs> this is the podcast about uh, movies that have fallen through our cracks. That's right, Craig. Today, we have a very special crack to add oh, to, the, yeah. to the podcast. We have guest, an independent filmmaker, writer, director, occasional actor, Heath... Michaels, <laughs> definitely, definitely not an actor. <laughs> you were in your own movie, so that counts. Um, Buying a TV. <laughs> Heath wrote and directed the independent film from 2010 10? called Yearly. Yeah, uh, about a man whose domestic life kind of falls apart after uh, sexual harassment accusation of sorts. Yes, so that's fair to say. Mm. Fair to say. And uh, if you haven't seen that, you got to go watch that. Where can they watch that, Heath? Uh, well, actually, it's it was for sale on Amazon, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, right now it's not. We had an issue with Amazon itself, um, but we haven't put it up digitally anywhere. So, Well, maybe that'll happen. You can contact Heath, I'm sure, and he could hook you up. We'll make that uh, an option through our website, but uh, hopefully we'll get you back on Amazon sometime <laughs> if, if Prime <laughs> steps up, right? Yes. Right. We have a fun movie to talk about today, but I think before we get into that, We'll do a little chat with Heath, sort of like we've done in the past when we had filmmakers on. Mm-hmm. Craig and I know Heath from film school, as most of our guests have been, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, which is great. It's a great thing for us to, uh, to have that available to us, and uh, mm-hmm. we've all kept in touch, and he's been at it, doing the grind, um, had some recent screenwriting success on the contest circuit mm-hmm. at um, the Nichols Fellowship, yep. which is probably... The creme de la creme of all screenwriting contest, for that's, sure. That's what I hear. For sure. And then mm-hmm. uh, also in the uh, final draft. Yeah. The software contest. So that's fantastic. Awesome things ahead. I think we should start with our kind of go-to question, which is, at what point did you realize this was something you wanted to do? And what? why? Make, make, make movies. Oh, make movies? Oh, God. I, that's... You're supposed to kind of prep people for the questions, right? No, there's that, no prep. You've that, listened, yes. Okay. You've been prepping for this all your life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't. I can't say that there was one definitive moment. You know, I think no. it was just a matter of uh, we had a really great theater uh, back in my hometown that was just like just excellent, and I used to go there all the time. It was like a buck fifty to watch a film, and these were new releases, so I would just watch multiple times during the uh, uh, during the weekend, and that just got me excited. Nice. I mean, there's really not a better story. Any specific movie that stands out from that theater experience? What was the first movie you saw there? Do you remember? Oh, God. I couldn't even tell you. First, you don't remember? Okay. And not the first movie. Yeah. But I remember, I remember movies that I watched when I was younger. You know, like Black Hole and Star Wars. Obviously, I saw the first Star Wars in theater. Nice. Um, 77. And I think that was probably like the big one. Sure. Yeah. And was there a moment where... We like to kind of ask, okay, that you realized, you know, my taste might be a little different from my buddies, or maybe I like movies more than the average Joe. Yeah, but you know, it was growing up in my hometown, it's such a small hometown mm-hmm. that I feel like it was kind of embarrassing to say it. Like, yeah. you know, it was like a small southern town in North Carolina, and People always tell me, like, what do you want to be when you graduated? And everybody's like, oh, you know, I want to be a police officer. I want to be a nurse. And, you know, to say I want to go make movies in Hollywood. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, slow down there, uh, astronaut. So, no. Yeah, I don't know. You guys maybe had the same experience. I remember being in film school and then, like, say between freshman and sophomore year, going back to my small town to work during the summer. Mm-hmm. And people ask what you're doing or where you go to school, and you tell them you're at film school. I either got two responses. The first one was which just people went, oh. And then the second one was, <laughs> oh, you're going to be the next Spielberg. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't forget me when you get famous. <laughs> Every like, time. Yeah. yeah. Every time. Yeah. 
and obviously, yeah, there was no middle ground between that for a lot of people. So, you know, it's, it's managing those expectations a right. little bit. Well, let's talk about Yearly. Um, how did that project originate? Uh, yearly was just, okay, so I wanted to direct something. I was ready. The stuff that I wanted to direct was going to cost too much. Sure. So I needed something I could do <laughs> that would be, uh, you know, as close to free as possible. So we paid about $15,000. That was our budget. Wow. And I said, okay, I need a movie I can make for about 15000 uh, And I went the route of drama, and we cast it in like two days, and it was incredibly tough to do. And uh, But we, we persevered, and we did really well in the f- festival circuit. Half the festivals we were in, we were nominated for uh, uh, Best Feature, which was great. Awesome. Uh, and then we made the monumental mistake of four-walling a theater and then like sending it out to L.A. Weekly, L.A. Times, Variety, and they completely eviscerated the movie in reviews. And we were like, Shit. ah, because we were doing so great in the festivals, and then we get out, and it's just like, no, 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 these these are the big critics, and they see a $15,000 movie. They're like, why the hell is this on my desk? And so that was pretty much that. Yeah. But but it was cool. I mean, we, we still had fun. Uh, the festival circuit was a blast. I mean, it did uh, really well, especially in Santa Fe. We, we, we premiered in Santa Fe Film Festival, and... We had no clue what was going to happen. We didn't know. We just knew where we were premiering. Sure. We show up, and we're at the final event at the end, and they're going through the best features. And you've got stuff with, like, you know, West Studi, obviously, because it's, it's New Mexico. You've got uh, uh, Bashimi film up there and all this, and then all of a sudden they cut to a f- my face. <laughs> they, di- they didn't even use, like, a still from the film. They used, like, a picture of me, and it was nice. the most embarrassing thing. And I'm just sitting there, and... and <laughs> My wife starts cracking up because she knows I hated that picture. And, but it was a good experience. I mean, you know, to be nominated was really great. Is it a picture of you with like a, a clapboard? It was, <laughs> it was me holding a camera. Oh, nice. And it was you so better. posed because I, I had to take the picture in order to, to submit you to the You had to give them something, yes. Yeah. So I had to just go out and, well, and, and pose for it and, you know, that sort of thing. So it was kind of a pain in the butt. Well, I will point out on IMDb, Yeardley is currently enjoying a 9 out of 10 star rating. And to put that in perspective, Star Wars is at 8.7. So, <laughs> boom. I, 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 that's, that's pretty tight. I, I would say that there's a, you know, uh, there's probably an issue with the aggregate score there. Like the number of, uh, <laughs> the number hey, of man, people scored. Are you saying IMDb's lying, man? What's don't, up? <laughs> don't but, uh, take it down a notch. No. But, but we'll ignore that and we'll look at it and I'll, I'll take the 9 out of 10. That's pretty cool. I didn't, I, I didn't even know. I mean, I made the film and yeah. just kind of moved on beyond that and was, you know, focusing on other things. For sure. so. Well, I, that's a question I wanted to ask was, you know, I think it, anybody listening to this probably understands that, oh, yeah, if you make an independent movie, it's going to be difficult. There's going to yeah. be compromise, especially when you're talking about a $15,000 budget. It's, it's crazy that you even finished it. Yeah. Um, things like doing the four wall or mm. submitting a <laughs> headshot that you don't like. <laughs> is there anything else that you think is valuable advice having looking back at it that maybe even like a, a sort of savvy person filmmaker might not know or think of for this like going through that experience yeah well, the first thing I would say is uh, you know cast longer than two days okay that, that seems a like problem. a good yeah <laughs> and I, I was fortunate because we wound up with some you know some really top notch actors I mean people who were you know down to, to work really hard and you know did it an amazing job, but um, I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I could give is to learn to broom people early on. Is like don't try to force a square peg into a circle hole. Right. That that is something that is very important. If you're if you feel that you're having to chase people to get things done, you got to especially at that level. You got to just sort. Of, you can't force people to be excited about something they're just not excited. Right, about. and maybe mm-hmm. it's it's not going to get better than at the start yeah yeah and because you can find people that are wanting to work with you and when you find those people those people are going to you know give 110 percent, and it's going to be awesome and and that's that would be one of the things i would say that i was a big valuable lesson also don't make a film for fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> would probably be the second lesson well i was curious about that because a you shot in los angeles and that's you know i think in a lot of ways it's more difficult um, and then people imagine just because, well, you think, oh, there's industry here. But, like, I know, for example, you got kicked out of Griffith Park one day. Um, yep. Well, if, we, all things being equal, <laughs> would you do it in L.A. again? 
Like, if you could just take the same amount of money and know that you get a good crew some other location, would you shoot in a city? Again? The, the funny thing is, I'm about to shoot a short, and it's going to be shot here in L.A. Mm-hmm. And even though I said if I didn't have the money, I wouldn't shoot in L.A. again, I'm lying now because I'm <laughs> going to come and shoot in L.A. again. But Well, that's a short, and maybe that's the difference a short, between that and a feature. It's a short, one location, based on almost one location, so it was it's, okay. it's much easier to, to manage. Uh, the problem with Yearly was we were on location all over. And it was, I mean, it was just like, oh, we're going to do a story, and then they'll be in the park, and they'll be over here, and they'll be doing this. And we went up to Griffith Park to shoot one little sequence, one little scene. It's like a conversation, and looking out at the city. We shot all one direction, and then the rangers show up. And it was hilarious because they show up and they kick us out. And the, we, we tried to, you know, finesse some sort of arrangement. And they said, no, nah, you got to leave. Funny thing was, is so we had to leave and come back a week later to shoot everything the opposite direction. So the <laughs> actors are, like, acting off of each other from a week apart. Mm-hmm. I swear we tried to shoot everything there, you know, sneak it. And so we, we would sneak around and try to get off the path and go... I remember one time we went into the a woodsy area, and I were, we're like discussing maybe we can shoot it here. And then I look up, and there's a ranger. Like I could see him up at the top. Like Jeez. they're just peeking down in there. And at one point they had a helicopter out. I swear to God they had the helicopter out. Wow. And I was like, this is a lot of resources to put on like a, just a few independent filmmakers that aren't stopping anybody. <laughs> I like seriously, we had five people going up there. We had a yeah. sound guy, two actors, me, and like you know the camera person, and that was basically it. Yeah, and maybe there's also some of that uh, loss of mystique for the people that live here, but like seeing a, a film crew down the street is not a, an unusual experience, whereas mm-hmm. like, you know, everybody else is like, oh, wow, this is fantastic. How neat, you know? I still um, like it. When I go down the street and I see that there's like grip trucks and yeah. stuff, I like to look and just see what, yeah, what people are doing. It's cool. and, yeah, it's interesting. But, uh, I, you know, maybe that adds to some of the challenge of, of shooting in Los Angeles at that budget level and stuff. Yeah. Um, what about in the in the post finishing the movie and anything from the festival world that you think is good advice as mm. far as picking and choosing like where you go or who you submit to or, I or definitely budgeting think for that because I know it's not a cheap thing. You got to do you got to have a strategy. That's what everybody said, and I didn't quite mm-hmm. understand that at first, and so I did some research, and I think we did it right because. We did tier one. We, we decided what would be tier one, and we did that first. And then, so all the ones you want to hit, like Sundance, Toronto, uh, of course, we didn't make any into those. And then you, you go to tier two next, you know. But we did get into Santa Fe, and that was the end of our tier one. Mm-hmm. And so we were so excited to get in there because, we, you know, we had a little awesome. $15,000, you know, movie. So right. we, we didn't have high expectations. But, but I, I'd say we'd definitely come in, come in with a strategy, you know. Hit the ones you want first. You, you don't have to, if you shotgun it out to all the festivals, you're going to get into like a really crappy one in like, you know, in Starkville, Mississippi or something. And you don't want to, you don't want that to be your world premiere because that might jinx you later because, you know, something like Sundance won't bring you in if you've already premiered it. Yeah. And that's something that I didn't know, I think, until hearing about your experience was that that is a big part of it is those festivals want to be the place to <laughs> yeah. premiere a movie. Yes. So, yes, that, that does become a situation in, in in certain circumstances, I'm sure. And you got to think about like world premiere versus U.S. premiere. US, U.S. premiere, regional premiere, state premiere. So when you're doing your world premiere, mm-hmm. so if you're going someplace and you're like, okay, we got into a festival. And it's one thing to make that like a state or regional a premiere and not make it a U.S. premiere. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you can hold out for another one so that you have to keep thinking about those sort of things. Sure. I was wondering, I mean, you said obviously that you part of the reason you made yearly was because you needed something that was, you know, cheaper than the other ideas that you had at the time. How much, though, whenever you were writing it, when you were coming with the story, how much uh, were you thinking about the festivals down the line, just in terms of like what kind of story plays good there and that kind of stuff? Or were you not even thinking about that when you were writing? Uh, No, I was definitely thinking about it, unfortunately. I think that was probably a mistake. I'm not really, I mean, it was a story that I wanted to tell. It was something I was interested in at the time. Right now, I'm not interested in it in the least, you know. (laughs) But at the time, I loved the idea, and it was a story I wanted to tell at the time. Um, But, you know, you certainly think about those sort of things. And you certainly think about, well, how is this going to fare? Is this, you know, you have to think about, is this, 
going to hurt your chances in the future? Is it going to help it? What, what, is it, what is it going to say about you as a filmmaker? So yeah, certainly mm-hmm. it was top of mind. Well, I think that's something that a lot of, I mean, even you know, people like the Spielbergs of the world or whatever, the people that they thought I was going to be when I graduated film school, um, <laughs> that's a huge part so of the consideration of the jobs that they say yes to. It's like, do I want to spend a year doing this and like being able to kind of predict your level of enthusiasm for something six months down the line, you know, um, and, that, and that's not always easy. And so I think that that's pretty interesting to hear. And I think it is something to definitely think about, especially in that world, because you are hoping to have the longest festival run possible. Mm-hmm. And then if that goes completely well, you get distribution. And that might be another six months before your movie's ever in the theater. And then you got to ramp up again and do all that press. So... Yeah, I think people maybe underestimate how long of a process that can be. I think I think that you know another thing to keep in mind is you, you mentioned distribution and that they will sell you uh, everything, and they'll they'll tell you it's like you know my distributor was one of those guys who was like oh man we really want this I had a couple of distributors that wanted to distribute uh, yearly, and they all promised big things right you know con festival you're gonna go we're gonna four wall in New York and LA we're going to do this and that we're going to we're going to put it on I remember one of them telling me oh we're going to we're going to put it on 35 millimeter because it's just that good and it's going to win an Oscar and I was like whoa slow down <laughs> slow the fuck down it is the first $15,000 <laughs> movie to win an Oscar yeah. <laughs> but you get that kind of weird smoke blown up your ass and sure. I think one of the best pieces of advice I got was from David Green he said distributors are going to promise you everything just get it in writing Anything that they want to do, get in writing right away, and because they'll tell you anything on the phone yeah. to get you to sign a contract, and those contracts always are stacked in a way that's good for the distributor, not good for the filmmaker. And so, you know, if they're promising you things, say, "Great, that sounds awesome." Put it in writing, enumerate it in some sort of you know clause or something. That's very interesting. I wonder if that world will change a little bit as these online places become more of a distribution option, I and hope so. um, yeah, hopefully finding. You know, more of a, a market for, for small films like that in the online space, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Joel Petrikas, who's the director of the movie Buzzard, which we've talked about previously, just released a film. And it's through Oscilloscope, which is, um, you know, they, they've done a fair amount of good, big productions. But it's he's sort of releasing it as a pay-what-you-want kind of model online, which that's an interesting strategy, too. So I don't know. I think the future is 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 definitely up in the air for what that's going to look like for smaller films mm-hmm. um, and hopefully weed out some of those scoundrels. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. There's a, a lot of slimy people. Yeah. yeah. So right now, so you're, you're planning to shoot a short. Uh, are there more features after that? Like, what are your plans? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always wanted to make films. I mean, that was something that, yeah. I, you know, was, was in me. And I just knew early on what I wanted to do. I didn't know specifically why. It's just something I wanted to do. And uh, I have very little desire to do anything else. I mean, I just, this is what I want yeah. to do. I mean, I, I was a programmer for a while out here and, you know, pretty mm-hmm. successful at it. But, you know, it's just didn't complete me. You know, it's not, it's yeah. not who I am. And uh, it was more of like a paycheck type of deal, but. So yeah. yeah, I'll keep going after this short. Craig, what do you think? Let's uh, switch gears, talk about a movie? I think this is a good time to start talking about cavemen. So today's movie is from 1981. It's called Quest for Fire, and I'm going to take the blame for being the one that's never heard of this movie. <laughs> I, uh, you know, It <laughs> seems pretty obvious now that it's something I should have heard of um, for a lot of different reasons. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, neither of you guys had seen it before? I had never seen it. I'd never seen it, no. I, I knew about it from the poster, and I had just heard this interview with Ron Perlman talking about it, and all I could think was Ron Perlman was in that? <laughs> uh, so yeah, the fact that he mentioned it was uh, fortuitous. Well, and then I think once you, you saw it, you probably realized, oh, it's perfect for Ron Perlman, because Quest for Fire is <laughs> the story which takes place in prehistoric time about three tribesmen who go search for a new source of fire. Um, That's the very brief synopsis from IMDb. And Ron Perlman does play one of these Neanderthals along with Everett McGill um, and Nicholas Cotty. And, of course, we have Radon Chong in here again. We just talked about in Fear Uh City. 
Um, I, ble- I believe he was a homo sapien. He was a homo sapien. Well, we'll get into that a little <laughs> bit because the science of this movie is is a little flimsy here and yeah. there. And yeah. I think to the extent yes. that the, the director, Jean-Jacques Onot, French director, I read, I think in the commentary when the DVD came out, he was like, yeah, the book took place 80,000. The book was written in 1911 that this is based on, right? So mm. a lot changed between when that author, um, J.H. <laughs> Rosney Sr., yeah, set the, the book in, in uh, 80,000 years ago. And uh, what we know about that time period now, he said it, it certainly would have made sense to set it in a much more recent era. Um, and probably certain things like the fact that I read uh, there were no saber-toothed tigers of any sort uh, outside of North America, uh, certainly not in Europe, so um, things like that. Although I liked seeing them in this movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably got to check your, your anthropology PhD at the door if you're watching this. I had to. Yeah, I, I think it, it's an interesting movie. I mean, right off the bat, we should say there's really no dialogue to speak of. Now, there's a dialect and a whole sh- lot of grunting. But no actual words that you're going to understand. A lot of rape. And a lot of rape. <laughs> a good bit of rape. Why, why are you laughing at rape? Sean? I'm not laughing at rape. I'm, I, some of the way in which it was presented was humorous to me. and just Stop, very, la- stop laughing at rape, Sean. It's very animalistic. These are, these are descendants of apes and not very far removed in a lot of ways. Um, it's true. There's some bug picking off the back of people's heads and eating them. Blood licking. Yeah, there's a there's some penis biting that happens in this thing. Yeah, yes, and uh, and then but but also Sean, but also penis healing. Penis healing. So I feel like yeah, it was pretty balanced. And uh, uh, a bond between tribes that can't be broken because two mm. pe- two people fall in love, and there's a baby on the way by the end of this thing. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was a pretty interesting ride, but. I don't know. Just let's let's hear just general thoughts. Heath, did you like Quest for Fire? I did. I thought it was fun. Uh, I think it, it's one of those movies that you would probably like it a lot more if you saw it in 81. I think it's definitely dated. Well, and let me say, I think that was one of the reasons I thought, oh, this will be fun for us to watch because you were the one that suggested The Inward Forest, which we did a few episodes back. And I think they're of the same kin, probably, same family tree. And that and that was a film that I watched in uh, that the cinema in, in that my theater? hometown. Yeah, and that nice. uh, it was a double feature. It was that and Meatballs too? I don't know who came up with the, <laughs> the combination, but uh, but Emerald Forest uh, was was awesome. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but it's good. Yeah. I liked it. We liked it. I remember enjoying it a lot. Craig, what about you? How did this yeah. movie work for you? Uh, man, I, I I really loved Quest for Fire. Um, I again, I I kind of knew of it. I was really uh, intrigued by the poster. I think as a kid, and so I've kind of always carried this poster around. I didn't understand exactly what it would be about. Of course, I never read up on it uh, until <laughs> till last night. Late and I had to watch it. Uh, but no, I mean this movie is hilarious. <laughs> and then I think like I I think it it is certainly supposed to be hilarious to an extent. Uh, you're supposed to laugh at them, but you know, I mean, honestly, by the end, like you, you do, uh, or I do, love these characters. So even when, you know, they're they're in mortal danger of sinking into quicksand, and even though that's funny, <laughs> uh, I'm 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 worried about them. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, this this movie really took me on a ride. I gotta say, what about you, Sean? Well, uh, just on that note, I, I pulled up the review uh, that Roger Ebert wrote for this movie, and he sort of started off talking about how, in the first couple minutes, like, yeah, he was laughing at these guys and wondering what he was getting into. And so he, he wrote, I'll just read some of this paragraph. He said, I suggested earlier that there's probably a temptation to laugh during Quest for Fire, especially during such touchy scenes as the one in which early woman teaches early man that it wasn't as good for her as it was for him. Um, he says, but thinking over my response, I realized that I wasn't smiling at the movie, but at the behavior of the characters. Man is a comic beast. For all of our dignity, we are very simple in many of our wants and desires. And as we crawled out of the pri- primeval sludge and started our long trek towards civilization, there must have been many more moments of comedy than of nobility. 
And uh, I'm like you. Yeah, there was, I mean, specifically thinking of the scene where, you know, Radon Chong was a member of a different tribe than like the Ron Perlman and the Everett McGill characters. Um, sl- uh, more advanced, less hairy, uh, more covered in some sort of gray paint or ash or something, markings, if you will. Completely naked, of course. But she is she laughs when a rock falls off of something and hits Ron Perlman in the head. And these guys have never heard <laughs> laughter before. That was absolutely right? absurd. It was great. It was. And she's got a very high-pitched, shrill, kind of interesting laugh. But then later on, they're sitting around, and Ron Perlman <laughs> chucks a rock at one of the other guys, hits him in the head, and then they all crack up laughing. Even the guy <laughs> whose head is bleeding profusely thinks it's funny, so too. Great. And that is like it's a weird step of evolution to depict in a movie like this that is at times very serious, but at times, Oops. I mean, I, but yeah, absurd. Mm. But I think like it's a, such a better experience because of that. Like, and also, yeah, you know, I mentioned the saber toothed tigers. You know, there's this moment where these three guys on their quest, and we should say, you know, this movie is gorgeous. It was shot in Scotland, Africa, I think Kenya specifically, and Canada, and just some really gorgeous landscape photography. Um, and they use real, I don't know if they're mountain lions or what, but they stuck tusk on them. These are real animals (laughs) chasing after these dudes. There's no trees around except for one, and they all three climb up it, and the animals just park at the trunk of the tree. So these vicious animals are sitting there um, over the course of a night, and then that scene ends, like the next day, I guess, I think it was Ron Perlman's character, falls asleep, falls out of the tree, (laughs) and immediately wakes up in this, you know, frantically jumping back up the tree, but you realize that the lions have gone, and it's like, okay, yeah, these guys are, they're sort of dumb cavemen. I mean, their brains are not that <laughs> developed. You know, also, just one other thing, and then we move on, but there was that one time where, um, and I think it was that cannibalistic tribe that had Radon Chong captured, mm-hmm. held captive, they create a diversion, and then the Everett McGill character, character runs over and grabs a burning log from the fire and runs off and then realizes, oh, no, he actually picked up one that was not lit <laughs> and has to go back. And I was just like, you idiot. Like, I mean, I, I loved all that stuff. Like, that to me, it made yeah. it such a richer experience. I do. I think you're right. Like, it, it sort of has a cumulative effect that you're caring for these guys and rooting for them. Yeah, it's it's never played for, uh, I guess, like Ebert was saying, it was never played for sort of comedy outside of the story. Uh, and I was thinking specifically about the scene, the first scene where I was really, where I, <laughs> I was really losing it was early on where uh, they've been attacked and they've, they've run out in the middle of this bog. And then they're, they're one sort of, I don't know, I don't know if you could call him a village idiot caveman. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The bald guy? Yeah, but, the bald guy. Yeah. Well, he's the keeper but, but of he, the fire, right? Right. And so he's walking out with his fire and everyone's out on this little island going, and they're like gesturing for him to come to him. And every step he takes, he's almost like falling in the water. And that (laughs) shit was killing me. Yes. And then at the end. Yeah. And then what happened (laughs) at the end with that guy? (laughs) I mean, that one was so absurd. Like he just, he immediately just went down with it. Like he just fell right in the water. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, like the whole, the whole movie is just about getting one tiny flame and he just goes, this goes right into Yeah. It. They go on this adventure. <sighs> they have the quest for but, fire. They return with it. And then they hand it to that guy again. <laughs> and he immediately drops it in the water again. That was great. It's a great uh, arc, yeah. You know, what's, you know what's funny about that The story is, like, I even, like, how everybody was introduced. I, I really thought it was creepy when you first are introduced to Radong Chong's character. She is kind of creepy, and they're well. They're hanging from the tree by yeah. their limbs, tied, and one of them has a missing arm, and and that wasn't yeah. like a prosthetic. I mean, she no, that yeah. person didn't have an arm. I mean, that was yeah. I don't know. It was just really creepy. It was very visceral. Well, there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that you know it it underlines this sort of barbaric nature of mm-hmm. you know that time period. It does sort of start off with this kind of calm early moments of 2001 dawn of man sequence you know um and then you realize oh these people definitely have already discovered tools and weapons they Mm -hmm. get attracted they get attacked by um this other tribe that is much more hairy and animal-like and and closer to apes than than even our lovable neanderthal guys or 
Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens. I don't know what they are. <laughs> I just read on Wikipedia. I think the Neanderthals were the first ape-like group, and then there was the right. they were the Homo sapiens, and then oh, I see, yeah. Radon yes, Chong right. was the Cro Magnum or I, I don't know. Yeah. But there was no Piltdown, man. There was no Piltdown. Or down. Australopithecus, so that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's all we remember from college class. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I like that. I mean, you've got that moment where you're seeing, even just seeing them all sort of sleeping together and realizing, oh, there really is that sort of tribal pack kind of thing going on here. And then that gets threatened by, the, you know, they use their nose to pick up on the fact that there's intruders coming into their area. But even seeing how that other tribe sort of staged their attack, like they drew them out of the cave and then there were two on top of the cave that pushed the boulders down on top of them and that kind of thing. And then I think I kind of thought maybe you were going to talk about going into the bog as these, you know, the survivors run away. One of them gets like straight up attacked by like three wolves. And uh, again, these are real mm-hmm. animals. Um, this director, Jean-Jacques Hinault, he also directed the movie The Bear. And he's done Enemy at the Gate, Seven Years in Tibet, um, a couple of things like that. Just these big epics. But it, it seems as if even with his most recent film, Wolf Totem, uh, this guy's got a crazy experience working with animals and, and is really pretty damn good at it, it's mm-hmm. as evident from this movie. Although I will say there was the one moment where Ron Perlman uh, picked up a burning log and threw it at the wolves, and one of those <laughs> wolves totally caught on fire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it ran away. Uh, it was a small amount of flame, but it, it, it clearly... Was, it was substantial <laughs> yeah, enough. Somebody got fined. Somebody got fined on that one. That wolf felt that. Um, what? Yeah. How about that poor guy that just kept... He lost his twin brother, and then he... Uh, he falls down into that cave with the bear. Yeah. And he gets completely mauled. <laughs> what was ridiculous, he comes out and he's just covered in, in blood, but he's not, his, his skin isn't flayed or anything like that. He just comes out and he's just covered in blood. Uh, and he obviously would have died. He would have been completely mauled. This would, this, would, this would be a death. But he makes it out, and you see him at the very end, and some chick is, like, licking his arm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. kind of interesting. And he had Tongue this, bath, baby. And he had this goofy, like, sort of sideways uh, grin on his face. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of the animal cleaning. Let's talk about the mammoth scene. Yes. The mastodon scene. I know that bothered you. That, that was probably my least favorite scene. Well, I mean, it's just the idea that, oh, we're, we're being surrounded, and they need the... You know, it's very convenient to have the the mammoths show up and, or the mastodons, and they go over and offer it hay, and that's going to be enough to make <laughs> that, that the little brains inside these mastodons are going to go. Oh, you're offering me food. You must be something that I can protect, and so I will protect you now from these threats because I can. I'm smart enough to understand what is your threat and what you're doing. No, it's it's ridiculous. They, it was the idea. Well, well Kubrick, I, I mentioned this to Sean while we were watching it. I was like, you know, Kubrick used to talk about a lot of, you know, sort of uh, 1970s filmmakers that would always put the noble savage into in their movies. And I guess the greatest example of, of that would be like 1980s, you got Dance with Wolves, that sort of thing. You know? mm-hmm. And it's where, you know, if it's these, it's untouched nature. It hasn't been tainted by Western democracy or anything like that. And so they're naturally good and that's the same thing for animals it's it's society and in you know western democracy that has tainted them and that has always been something that he kind of rolled his eyes at and you see it throughout especially in movies back in like the 70s and 80s and that that was a perfect example of it with the mastodons i i didn't have the same read on that and and this was another scene that was that i thought was hilarious and and it's it's interesting that that was your take on it because that that I, i can see what you're saying but my take on it was that those uh, mammoth mastodons were basically not going to do shit. They were just big and scary, and everyone's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do now. They're big and scary. And so that motherfucker just gives the guy some hay. Like, they're not going <laughs> to protect them and shit. Like, <laughs> it's just... But, but who you has... Know, and then they just, I, I guess they do roar again. Yeah. And that kind of does signify that they're sort of on their side. Well, my thought was... These mammoths have no problem getting this exact same hay themselves. Like, yeah. there's not, it's right, not right. much of a gift. That's you know? a good point. You know? he, they, he no. just picked it up off the fucking ground <laughs> and, like, here you go. Yeah, it was that, that whole scene. Stoop over. Yeah. It was so, so ludicrous and absurd. And 
I, I thought it was cool to see those animals there. Mm-hmm. They did. They used elephants and then dressed them up, and it, you know, it looked a little fake. There were some times where they, the yeah. shot selection was just, I think, maybe didn't sell the effect of it a little bit in that moment. But it still was kind of cool. It's like, oh yeah, there's there's like a woolly mammoth there. The prop, the problem I had, I, could, I I was I was fine with it when he had the elephants dressed up like the mammoths or the mastodons or whatever, and because I, I, I bought it. I think what felt fakey was when every time he would go in for a close up, and I noticed the director did this often, where he'd go in for a close like a closer shot and he'd go like you know, low angle, and that was some form of animatronics. Like it looked like oh, the, okay. the with the nose going up and all that. Like that was sort of puppetry. And the same thing with the the bear fight. There was shots of real bears and he would do quick cuts, but he would cut between a fake bear and a real bear. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it felt like, you know, puppetry and so Yeah. Still, I think on the whole, pretty solid in that yeah. regard. No, especially for eighty two, yeah, or eighty one. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, like the fact that none of it was stop motion or anything. At least that, you know, in blue <laughs> just screen, completely take you out of it. Yeah. Uh, here's a question um, for you guys that I want to ask, and uh, mm. if I have one sort of overriding critique of this, and it's not even really a critique, but I'm just curious what you think about it. the question I asked myself was by the end of it. Is it clear why the Radon Chong character is into this caveman, the Everett McGill character, or or to the extent that she develops? I mean, I think by the end of that movie, we're supposed to take away that this is a loving relationship between these two. Saved her life, but did he? That because I thought that's what it is. But then he, she got down on her own, right? Did she? I think she did. Because she was kind yeah, of pulling I mean, away at the ropes, and she could have just ran away. She sort of followed them. Okay. If I remember correctly. And so, I, I, I mean, there were times it. where they were, like, trying to leave her, and then there were times where she left. And, uh, I mean, I get, like, it works in the sense of this movie. Yeah. I think it's not a problem. I think stopping and think about it, because I did, I was like, oh, well, yeah, he saved her. But I was like, oh, wait, did he save her? I don't know that he did. So all the things that you had to suspend... Your disbelief. That was on. not the biggest one. No. This is the one that you're going to harp on. <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's the biggest story question I have. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of, yeah, of shoehorning uh, uh, a romance into a movie, like, I wouldn't have expected this to be one of those movies where we needed to have a romance thread. Uh, I, I, I can see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, yes, he, they, they did uh, create sort of a diversion that helped her get away. But then, like, the next thing he, where the, their next interaction is him raping her, I guess? Yeah, I mean, that's, so that's hard to recover that from. That usually is, like, that's the end of the relationship. But you have to remember, um, I think, but that feels a little bit more true to maybe the way primitive man was. You know, oh, like, absolutely. Like, like, rape wasn't seen as immoral back then, you know, neither was murder and eating people. Right. I, I think it was just, you know, the mor- morality is obviously different back then than it is today, so. Yeah, and I think you, you maybe yeah. you're right. It's like, if you're looking at it as, I have to choose a mate to continue our society, the, the toughest, strongest guy is most likely to keep me alive. Yeah. You know, so there's probably mm-hmm. some of that. But this is a good segue to a scene that I almost forgot about. The scene where Everett McGill's character is brought back to, or when he, he gets in the quicksand and then is kind of captured, so to speak, by Radon Chong's tribe, he is brought into the hut, given a, an elaborate feast, and then uh, a line of large women mm-hmm. are brought in for him to basically have his way with. <laughs> what, was, what was the point of them being large? I, I think one thing I read was that they were sort of like in that culture, I guess, or in that tribe that, you know, it means that they've had the most food or, or that these are the prized possessions. They're the sort of elite class of of women in why, that. Why would they give it? Why would they give it to a complete? Story? That I don't know. Yeah. And not even know. of the same species. It's sort of subspecies. Yeah. You can go on on Wikipedia and their plot synopsis is quite lengthy and like they've got all the tribe names and, and everything kind of broken down. I'm maybe they're pulling from the book some a little bit, but they, mm-hmm. they talk about that scene and you can read a little bit more about that if you're interested. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, it still was a bit it was bizarre. It was kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, not that it would answer the question as to why they would do it, but 
uh, when I was watching it, for some reason, I was thinking that <laughs> this is maybe showing how stupid I am. I was thinking that they they were wanting him to like impregnate some of their ladies. That's interesting too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they and then they also they prevented Radon Chong from sleeping with him. From laying down with him. Right. Yeah, so that was kind of interesting, too. It's like, obviously, there's some sort of class system going on there. Right. Um, yeah. And status. But yeah, all that stuff was really interesting, you know, and especially, you know, removing the sort of burden of dialogue and conversation, I guess, from that. Mm-hmm. Like, it really mm-hmm. does allow you to do scenes like that and make them visual, and then, yeah, they're... It's kind of just up to the audience to figure out what you're supposed to take away from it. And that, man, can you imagine this movie getting made in any capacity right now? No. It's really tough. Well, what do you think that would, they would have to change? Yeah, I, I think, actually, honestly, I think that the love affair was probably something that they had to put in there for the time. I'd be have. surprised if that's in the book in the same way. Right. You know? Like, yeah, yeah I think you're yeah. right. I bet you that was something to, in order for it to be in theaters, they had to put in the love interest. I wonder if they remade the film today, what things would change. That would probably be one thing that, that I think a good filmmaker would probably say, well, we can do without. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even to the extent that, like what you're saying, Craig, like just don't have them end up together. Like, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Like, you know, it's like not... Are, yeah. Yeah, even it's not... I don't think it would have felt like a romance being shoehorned in there. Mm-hmm without that last scene, you know, and in a lot of ways, like, or if she had gone yeah. her separate ways at some point, like you would get it, I think. I bet you they, they would make things uh, much more uh, morally ambiguous mm-hmm. today, but I, I guarantee you this, the scenes where there is just blatant rape that's happening, like, and that happens a lot. <laughs> yes, that, it does. That You're introduced probably, to it early. And, yeah. and like, it's almost throwaway. It, yeah. yeah. Like, like, the, like early on, it's just like, mm. That would be handled just, in a much more different way today, I think, than it than it was back then. It would be handled in either a very look how awful this is sort of way, or it would be uh, sort of left to the imagination. But it would be it wouldn't be painted as so. Oh, this is just what happens. Well, yeah, it's hard to look at it too because, uh, like, I thought you know you're watching this, and I'm sure the inspiration is to go watch a nature documentary where that happens, and mm-hmm. like you see the animals, they they just mount and then they yeah. just dismount and they go. It's like it never happened, right? And that's how this is, with the exception of the evolution of that relationship between those two. Um, it, it does become something else in kind of an interesting way. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. The only sort of modern movie I could think of as a comparison was Apocalypto, mm. um, yeah. which, which I like a lot. And that, that has sort of the, it's got the relationship stuff in it too, but, um, you know, it's, it removes the language in some ways. Um, uh, well, and speaking of language, that's a good question. Uh, how much did Anthony Burgess's language help you in this movie? Uh, there's a credit at the beginning that says Anthony Burgess came up with the language. Yes. The languages in the film. Um, uh, to be honest, I, I was never able to discern anything, even so much as someone's name. I did read today that apparently there's a South Park episode <laughs> where they say, like, ata which I guess was the word for fire, which I didn't even pick up until I read that. Um, yeah. I, I'm kind of with you. I mean, I could tell that there was something there. Like, it wasn't just them just making noises. Right. Um, like, I think that was maybe the benefit of having somebody like, yeah, the author of Clockwork Orange come and do that. But as far as sure. me picking up on what it, any of it meant, no. no. I did read that, I guess, I think maybe on the DVD... You can turn on subtitles, and I, th- you know, maybe they sort of, uh, at least phonetically, attempted to put something down there. So I think you know people oh. who have hearing loss could at least pick up on on some of that, which that would be really be interesting. just as confused as the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be crazy to check out. Um, right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That that's I didn't take much more from it other than it was kind of cool. Yeah, it was just a novelty yeah. for me too. One other thing I, okay, like looking at the IMDb trivia, a majority of the scenes were shot in a single take. I don't buy that. I, there's no way. I bet you it's, how do you work with animals and do a single take? You Forget rehearse. It. That's probably, uh, I don't yeah, know. I don't buy it either. Yeah. Although, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it could just be PR, but I don't know. 
that guy, that director was pretty spectacular. I mean, he's definitely that was that was a hell of a film to it to attempt to make. Yeah, and he um, pulled it off. I think pretty pretty successfully. One other awesome thing from the IMDb trivia is that the the very first thing is that. The set designer caught anthrax when he handled untreated animal skins while working on set. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, no clue if he survived. I don't know. They don't put that here. But um, uh, and then one other kind of crew person I wanted to mention that Nobody I th- cared about him anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> he ain't above the line. <laughs> so, I there's this guy Michael D. Moore who was credited in this movie. And let me find it here if I can get the exact. Yeah, we'll wait. We'll wait. Credit. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait. edit this out. No, no, no. We'll, we'll leave it in. It's good. He's a second unit director. Man, listen to this: Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Patton, uh, The Electric Horseman, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Six Pack, Temple of Doom, Ishtar, Willow, Last Crusade, Ghostbusters Two. The Mighty Ducks, Ninja Turtles 3, Cool Runnings, The Three Musketeers, etc. That's a pretty As awesome... A s- second unit? Second unit on all those. You know, I feel like people who do second unit just kind of carve out a, a, like a, a niche. Yeah. And, and just like, like assistant editors and like you can, you can have a great career and be really good and that's what you do. Well, obviously Spielberg yeah. liked him for Indiana Jones because he did all three of those. So that, that's pretty awesome. Good that for is that pretty guy. awesome. That yeah. is awesome. Um... Any other things? Any favorite scenes? I, I loved the um, seeing those people make the fire with the sticks in the stone. Um, yeah, and seeing their those reactions to that, and then being properly amazed and kind of overwhelmed by it. Love yeah. that scene. Any other favorite scenes, Heath? I was trying to think. Penis I mean, biting? No, <laughs> no. Actually, the penis biting one kind of bugged me because it healed so fast. Well, I mean, I mean, you think about this this primitive man going in for the bite, cannibal, no less, cannibal. Yeah. Like he knows how to tear through some fucking flesh, <laughs> and it's not like there's a lot of protection down there, and you know it's pretty tender meat. So I feel like he could he could do some fucking damage, but no, you know, Radon Chong comes in with some fucking wet spinach and just slathers it on his penis and, <laughs> and the next scene he's he's ready to hump her it's like ridiculous well you know what i just thought of actually bringing that up is the scene from shawshank when uh the guy they corner tim robbins like you're gonna put yeah uh what i give you in your mouth and he's like i'll, I'll hit you with this your brain's gonna lock your jaw will lock you know or my jaw whatever yeah, the scene it was. was his jaw yeah. yes yes and um I'll bite your penis off. And that, that scene actually ends that way with him hitting that, the penis biter over the head with a rock. So I don't know, maybe, maybe Tim Robbins' whole speech was just pure bullshit. Because that, that guy's, it seemed he, had, he did I'm, not have a, a cannibal like locked onto his penis yeah, after he got I, knocked out. I'm pretty sure that Shawshank Redemption is probably not <laughs> the place that I go for, for medical accuracy. But, uh, but sure, you know, you do you. Well, hey. <laughs> When I'm thinking of scenes that involve penis biting, those are really the only two that come to mind. Um, well, no, there's a, there's one in Startup, isn't there? <laughs> What's there? What, d- doesn't d- d- there's a guard there's a guard yes. named Johnson who yeah. gets his penis bitten. That's right, Startup, episode number two of our podcast. We'll all go back and listen I'll, to that. I'll do a supercut of <laughs> penis biting, and then we'll we'll have something we can talk about. Well, Craig, any other favorite scene from you from uh, Quest for Fire? Yeah. Uh, again, I'll, I'll point out the quicksand scene uh, was also very hilarious to me, um, <laughs> even though even though I was worried about the character. Because I mean, for for a second, I kind of thought, "Wow!" And I thought the same thing when the when the bear attack happened. And I, now I kind of wish that they would have let the characters die, just because I felt like the whole time I felt like, "Man, it's so easy to die back then." Yeah, it's just so like you just get a, a small infection, you're just toast. So I kind of I kind of wanted him to just to just die, and then everyone's just like, "Where is he?" <laughs> like, I have no idea where he went. Did you notice the skull in the background? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So somebody had died there for sure. Yes, I, yeah. I don't think those. I mean, that was the thing, are... and like his buddies are just up on a rock, just not even just completely oblivious, and he's down there <laughs> screaming. He has no idea what's happening to him, and then and then a bunch of assholes come out and just start laughing at him. Yeah, that was. And he's great. like, "This is the worst way to die." Yes. Yeah. 
Well, it was um, weird, too, when that happened to those two guys that fell in the quicksand. It wasn't even quicksand. <laughs> it, was, it didn't even look like quicksand. Yeah. It was like yeah. just water. It was but, underwater, yeah. But when they, oh, those guys crowd around and they start laughing at them, then you cut to the next scene and they're just kind of walking around camp and I'm like, okay, what happened between here? They were released in a pretty conveniently easy way yeah. that was, we missed out part of that. Maybe there's a longer cut that kind of has um, a, a bit of that. It does seem like people just went to sleep and they woke up a little bit earlier yeah. than everybody else. So and these guys left. are stealing shit and leaving and <laughs> I'm like, what a, what an irresponsible tribe. And not, not very quiet about it either. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, well, I think to wrap this up, we should probably mention that Iron Maiden has a song called Quest for Fire from Peace of Mind. And it, it, it literally is about the movie. It's Yay. the exact same plot. It's great. Um, and also, it, it turns out 1981 <laughs> was a pretty big year for, for, um, for cavemen. You had History of, World, History of the World Part 1, excuse me, Mel, the Mel Brooks movie. There's a caveman segment in that. And then there was the movie Caveman starring Ringo Starr and Dennis Quaid. Mm which I watched a bit of this afternoon, and boy, is that a whole different can of worms. Uh, <laughs> does not look good at all. Um, so I think this was had to be the highlight of the Caveman trilogy for 1981, and it did win an Oscar for Best Makeup, and I think well-deserved, well-deserved. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. I feel uh, like this is a movie I could really recommend to a lot of people. I think so, I and... I think they wouldn't trust me at first, but I was like, you just have to sit down and watch it. Yeah, and it's it's and right. it's never dull, it's never boring, and it's, uh, it's on Netflix right now, so go check it out. There is a behind-the-scenes on YouTube, like a three-part thing. Unfortunately, the only version I could find was in French with Japanese subtitles, it looked like, so um, <laughs> even when they're interviewing Ron Perlman and he's speaking English, there's a French translator, but there's still a lot of cool stuff you can watch them put on the makeup. You can see that, yes, Ray Don Chong was just naked uh, around set even when she was not being filmed. So uh, I think they said that was one of the reasons she got the role because um, she was very yeah. willing. Make sure you put in a da-da at that point. We'll do. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think that should be a surprise to anybody about Ray Don Chong. Like, she, that's half no. of her career is naked. But man, I, w- I would love to find an, an English translated version of that because it looked really, really cool. Yeah. So that's Quest for Fire. Quest for Fire. Heath, thanks for joining us. Man, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Craig? Thanks. Yes. For, thanks for being you. Hey, thanks, man. And uh, yeah, if you want to check us out online, go to neverheardpodcast.com. All the links you need. Uh, look us up on Facebook, and we'll post a trailer or maybe a fun clip of uh, some quicksand or something. Pinterest? We don't have a Pinterest oh. site. Mm. Yeah, no, no oh. Pinterest. All right, y'all. Peace. Fire. Good night.